Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, the man with a face for radio and a voice for blogging, Mark Bigney, and with me is the show, The Candy, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. We've got a couple of corrections, one of them uh, serious and one of them not so serious. I'll start with the not so serious one first. It matters because we care about corrections. Uh, People have been asking us about the reprint of Can't Stop, and we erroneously attributed the publisher as being Tanuki Games. Tanuki Games was the retailer that was distributing, or selling it at least, in North America. But it's actually a Korean publisher called Playta, P-L-A-Y-T-E. So that is the actual publisher of the new version of Can't Stop with the magnetic box. We apologize for the error. More substantially, and this is actually something that I excised from the episode, so you might not have heard me do it, in an effort to criticize the 12-year-old power fantasy that is Geralt of Rivia, the main character of the Witcher series, I unintentionally made some associations with respect to speech impediments that was not intentional, but nonetheless extremely hurtful and irresponsible of me. I apologize sincerely. Going forward, I'll be more careful when trying to caricature something not to make ableist parodies in the process. I nonetheless stand by my position that Geralt of Rivia is fundamentally ridiculous. His swords are so big. Anyway. Silky, Silky hair. And uh, any offense uh, to people who think Geralt of Rivia is awesome, I do not make any apologies, but there we are. So, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Barcelona. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got My Island back to the table. This is sort of the follow-up, the third sort of installment in a sort of legacy-type setting. I guess the second one wasn't, it's more of a roll and write, not so much legacy, a little bit. But anyway, I really think it needs to get on with it. (laughs) This is published by Cosmos, and it uses hexagons, which are the bestagons, and much like uh, the first one, you are flipping cards that are going to go cycle through all the different shapes that you have. And much like Karuba and To the Limit, everyone's everyone's placing those tiles on their map in a different way. And it's slow, slowly, emphasis on slowly, adding, uh, ar- I don't want to say arbitrary, but not very, <laughs> not very exciting rules. It's like, oh, now create a, a batch of 
other tiles together and now make them in a straight line. I think there are two serious problems that my island faces with respect to us as specific individuals. One of them is that we were able to experience the full progression of my city. And so to a certain extent, we might have vestigial remembrances of the latter games of my city rather than the earlier ones. The second one is I think the most interesting novelty of my island was baked into the the original rules, namely that you always have to lead off the next tile off of an existing piece of terrain. And when the geography was very constrained, that led to, I felt, some pretty interesting tension. And for the early scenarios, there was actually a lot of bite in terms of, of being able to put things in places. As the rules have progressed, it's actually loosened things up. And to compensate for that looseness, we instead have this burden, uh, or at least incentive, to cluster like terrain tiles together in a variety of ways. And as you say, they're being introduced very slowly. And I think that's the fundamental issue. Now, I think part of the problem also is that we only played one session, not a full three, which is what you're kind of supposed to do. That's entirely my fault. But I agree with you that it it it, it it's unfortunate when the best stuff is front-loaded. It's, again, the problem of scenarios. You've got to make sure that there's enough there to begin with to grab you. But by the same token, if you're going to be running a legacy game, especially of this flavor, you need to be able to escalate and at the appropriate rate. And I agree with you that all told, I would be happier if it were escalating a little bit faster. And it, uh, as a consequence, it's feeling to me more like a spatial puzzle than it does to me like a Reiner Knizia tile-laying game. Spatial puzzles I don't tend to appreciate. Reiner Knizia tile-laying games, although they have an aspect of spatial puzzle in them, nonetheless, I feel like I'm being pulled in a variety of directions. And, and another issue related to that is that I recall that my city very early on introduced first two competitions. There were points in the map, that, and the first player to join the two would get a big point bonus. And that provided an awful lot of tension. Like, every time someone placed a tile, you'd be like, oh, did they get it? Did they get it? Am I going to get it next? So far, my island in our playings, and we are... Now, granted, we're only four plays deep, uh, but they have yet to introduce any player interaction, which is a bit unfortunate. Agreed. And that's... We're we're going to stick with it, though, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, 100. Okay, okay, I okay, definitely okay. want to see. Yeah. I, I'm hoping for new and, and differently shaped tiles and, and seeing if there's, like, some sort of story that emerges that would be might be interesting. So definitely want to see it right to the end. My Island, Reiner Knizia, Cosmos Games. I got to play Too Many Bones Unbreakable. Unbreakable is the newest standalone in the Too Many Bones series by Chip Theory Games. This is their fantasy adventure combat thingy. And I've talked about Too Many Bones in the context of adventure games of the sort of modern contemporary era where you're not really wandering around on the ground, cough the Witcher, but instead you're focusing on interesting combat mechanisms, cough the Witcher. And (laughs) just to pick a couple of comparisons that don't do it right. And Too Many Bones gets both right. The, the, the amount of narrative is just enough to give you some degree of texture for the world and some like, occasionally, it's a, it verges a little towards slapstick, but I, I find a, some of the, the setting charming. And it really leans into the combat encounters. It's a series of stage combat encounters. Now, what I find interesting about series like this is how much the new stuff manages to address what might have been either structural flaws or the possibility of of the formula getting stale. And I have to say that my experience with the Expand Alone was very promising because one of the intro characters that I played 
does attempt to address the fundamental criticism that a lot of people have that it is dominant to just buff up your attack stat and ignore everything else. Well, they are far more deadly, it seems to me, this particular one that I played called Gale, if you don't do that. If you instead pick a certain number of offense-related and support uh, skills that will, even if you just want brute offense, you're better off getting some of the, the cool toys, which is great because, you know, if you have all these cool toys in a game called Too Many Bones, you don't want to just ignore it and just bring the number from four to five to six to seven. The other thing that was marvelous, and this is going to lead straight to a criticism, was that one of the solo encounter cards does the thing that Too Many Bones does on rare occasions that I absolutely adore, and that says, well, we could give you another fight, but how about we just do something weird and stupid? So sometimes this results in bizarre little dice games, like very, very, very quick dice games, like roll a couple, maybe a little bit of pressure luck invented there, and it's like, yeah, we'll do that instead of a combat encounter. This one was a dexterity challenge instead of a combat encounter. Too Many Bones has done this before, but they did it again, and of course I was there. I was immediately sold. And it totally also vindicated some of the strange component decisions they made for this particular... Instead of having a battle mat, like a full neoprene mat like they've had in other ones, it's basically a series of holes. And you put rock chips in each of those holes and flip them when they become lava. And I thought, well, why don't you just give us a standard-shaped battle mat, have the chips be on top, and flip them when need be. It's fine. It'll just be... have one. Well, then you couldn't flick chips across exactly. that map, could you, Walker? I was ridiculously pleased. Now, that having been said, Unbreakable continues with the tradition of Undertow and the base game of having way too few solo encounter cards. You're, you could see all of the encounter cards over just a couple of sessions. It really is that parsimonious. Which is kind of okay and kind of not. It's kind of not for the obvious reasons. It's kind of okay because multi-handing, quote-unquote, too many bones is trivial. There's no hidden information, there's no hand. You just have, you know, two mats in front of you and you just play with two gear locks and that's cool. Another interesting thing that Too Many Bones Unbreakable did in this particular encounter, this was related to the boss. Another criticism that I've had of Too Many Bones is that if you lose an encounter, you're just going to be setting yourself up for loss after loss after loss because typically if you lose an encounter, you get no benefit from it and then just the challenges you, you face just increase. Well, this particular boss had it so that the challenges associated with the boss were fixed. You qualify for fighting the boss, and then if you fail to kill the boss in the boss encounter, it's not that you have to try again and now it's harder. You try again, but with the same overall challenge rating, but a different composition of what those enemies might be. And that I thought was vastly preferable, because quite frankly, uh, death spirals are not particularly enjoyable, especially in a context where there's a fair amount of sort of material repetition in Too Many Bones, setting up the different lanes and setting everybody up. So I had a very, very good time with my experience with Too Many Bones Unbreakable. I had resolved to kick my completionist habit, and I, I have. I'm not a completionist with Too Many Bones anymore, but I had an opportunity to play with some of the new stuff. I like a lot of the new stuff. It's all good. But I, I, I can be a whole satisfied human being without owning every Too Many Bones product, Walker. Are you trying to convince yourself or me? Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> so that was Too Many Bones Unbreakable. I don't know how... If, if someone were to ask me where to jump in, I think the base set is probably still better. 
Uh, we're still talking a very expensive proposition. It doesn't need to be that expansion, uh, expensive. The obvious comparison class for me is Assault on Doomrock, which has taken a far more economical approach to things. It's still a very expensive product, but you know, a very niche product. And it is similar in the sense that you know, abstract away the overland adventurer so that it's quick and to the point and forces the decisions on you. And then a very, very interesting combat mechanism. So I think that's the 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 obvious alternative in terms of, of economic alternatives goes. But nonetheless, too many bones on break is an interesting package designed by Josh A. Carlson, Adam Carlson, Logan Giannini, and Josh Wilgus, published by Chip Theory Games, fulfilled this year after more successful crowdfunding. We got a classic to the table called El Grande. This is designed by Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich. The Big! Published by Huns M. Gluck. And a couple people said that this is was their finest game of El Grande. One of them being you. One of them being me. One of them being Huey. And it just seems as though everyone was on board right from the beginning. There was very, very little uh, questions or unknowns or mistakes being made. And everyone understood what the ramifications were of all the cards and how they could all be manipulated in a way to help them out. It was very interesting that that it looked as though as though one player was king making and assisting someone in winning, and then end up winning themselves. Yeah, and, and that person that they were helping did not even come in second. Uh, we had the pit, which was super, <laughs> super fun and interesting. Well, that that that's the dynamism of El Grande, right? Not it was not only the case that somebody who was uh, third or fourth ended up winning. I think for for much of the game, and. The first, second, and third were jockeying like crazy near near the end bits of El Grande, but there was a region, just by virtue of the exogenous development of the power cards, that ended up being this massive resource sink, and so we called it the pit. And El Grande is, is I mean, by modern standards, El Grande is the soul of simplicity. It was always elegant, but now when you look at the, the modern Euro market, the, the rules are practically put it practically in a lightweight category. But nonetheless, there's this tremendous range of what might happen over the course of the game. And even though it's very abstracted, very themeless, it's got two frowny Euro dudes on the cover, not just one, that's twice as many frowny Euro that's dudes. Right. In case you like disregard the first, it... Yeah, yeah. Second in case one, you missed yeah. the first one, you just look past the the horse he's riding, go straight to the second frowny Euro guy. Even the house, uh, the horse is kind of frowny. In case you miss both, there's tremendous personality just from the player interaction and the way the different action cards interact. Agreed. And yeah, like I said, everyone was on board. Everyone understood how important it uh, turn order was, and 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 which actions to take right away. There was no sort of uh, I want to say king making, but you know. Making mistakes allow the next person to monopolize mm. the, the, unforced errors that, yeah. that would lead someone to to plot, yeah. profit thereby. It always seemed that the right cards were taken at the right times. And do you feel that in your previous playings, this had been less so? A little bit. Sometimes okay. you know newer players, and they would leave a card there, and then someone would you know massively monopolize on it. And then... oh, I see. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, El Grande remains one of my favorite Euros. It is prob it is it is probably still the best area majority game I've ever played. I am very bad at it. <laughs> I'm, I just what I find fascinating is I'm able to like look at the board and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This this area here is a massive resource dump. I I've put in six cubes to get four points. That's not a good idea. And then I sometimes find myself putting in the seventh and the eighth cube. And it's like, why am I so stupid? 
Like I know why I'm like I know why I lose. Like I, I'm able to look at the board and be like, yeah, 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 these were your mistakes. And yet I just keep wandering into them. It's 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 amazing, really. It was a party in the pit. It was, it was fantastic. Oh no, the pit the pit at least, I will say this. I <laughs> the pit wasn't my disaster. That was <laughs> you, I think you were the one who suffered the most from the pit until miraculously you then started profiting from the pit, which was weird. Everyone just wanted to throw the king in the pit, and <laughs> and I was winning the pit. Yeah, and... I think actually no. In hindsight, I think it was Dewey that was suffering the most from the pit. He had what five cubes in there for nothing. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> that is El Grande. Got to play a game of Asgard's Chosen. Asgard's Chosen is a bizarre kind of sort of almost troops on a map game, but not really. But it is about Norse mythology, and I adore the theming. You have to appease a variety of Norse gods by doing a variety of things for them. And in so doing, you have to forego their blessing, which is something you get to do every turn. And what really was highlighted during the session of Asgard's Chosen was how it's one of the best hand management games I think I've ever played. Because you've got a hand of cards. You get to play a god as a blessing. And at the start of the game, your entire deck consists of gods. So typically, you're going to have a god to choose from. Possibly two fights, and possibly a number of purchases, and possibly a victory condition to satisfy besides. And you really have to just figure out how much you're going to be able to get done as a consequence of what you've got there. And the fact that each god is a victory condition really helps focus this. It's like, okay, I've got these three gods in my hand. This one I'll never, I, I'm not in a position to satisfy. I'll consider it for my blessing. These two I might be able to do. Okay, I'll hold on to them. Eh, let's see how this shakes out. And you start picking fights. So it's, it, the, the amount of hand management is really, really well done. It's remarkably subtle in the, the way that it interacts with all the other elements of the board. And I find it hugely enjoyable. It's, it remains bizarre. The color matching is unfortunate because it's it's just one extra detail on top of a series of other details. I will say this, though. This was a, a very much like our session of El Grande where everyone seemed to be bringing their A game and thus there were no unforced errors. This game of Asgard's Chosen was similarly the case. Nobody had too much confusion about some of the niggly little corner rules like, for example, one that trips people up is you can't satisfy more than one victory condition per phase of the round. And the number of sessions that I've played where someone's like, okay, I'll appease this god, and then later on in the same phase, and then I'll appease this god too. It's like, I'm sorry, I gotta be the guy who tells you you don't get to do that. I don't want to be that. Nobody wants to be that no. guy. No, no, that guy. Everyone hates that guy. Everyone hates that guy. I know, but sometimes that guy has to be there and, and it tends to be me which is not fair. Similarly, the iconography, although very, very, very tiny, is nonetheless consistent. There were no real confusion over terminology. It worked out well because, you know, Asgard's Chosen isn't a particularly complicated game, but it's not the most streamlined imaginable. It's, you know, not an El Grande. And consequently, I've had a lot of people not take to it very well. Like, for example, when you're having a fight in Asgard's Chosen, there's the territory from which you're attacking and the territory into which you're attacking. Both of them can trigger special powers on the part of monsters. So, you know, you're attacking from a bog, your bog monster's going to be stronger and, and, and activate a special power. But the destination terrain of your attack precludes you from being able to play certain types of monsters because they just don't show up in those terrains. For example, if you've got a swamp creature, swamp creatures do not show up in mountains. They just don't. It is not the way of things. And consequently, some again, sometimes it's like, I'll play this monster. It's like, no, they can't show up there. It's like, oh, okay. Or, no, I thought it was the attacking terrain. You know, stuff like that. But it didn't happen. Everyone had a great time. Everyone had played before, but not recently. 
Asgard's chosen as an awkward position in my collection. It's the kind of game that I desperately want to play about every six months. But it is full of enough thorny rules that it makes it a little bit more difficult to do that. But it's so unique and interesting, and its take on the theme is so well done that I would never consent to part with it, even though sometimes, as I say, it's a bit of a lift to get it to the table. But Asgard's Chosen, for a jaded gamer like me, who sometimes think that there's nothing unique or interesting to do, it's really, really well done. Plus, its interface of deck building and map power, specifically in terms of winning fights, uh, it's basically Mage Knight. Basically. So that's Asgard's Chosen by Morgan Dauntonville, published by Mayfair Games in 2013. Regrettable components in a lot of ways, but nonetheless, thoroughly compelling. Never going to leave my collection, I don't think. Asgard's Chosen. So Mark, we really like a game called Planet Unknown. It has a lazy Susan, and you get to place Tetris-like pieces on a planet and go up lots and lots of tracks. I like Baron Park as well. It's another polyomino game. I've played tons of polyomino games, even mediocre polyomino games I really enjoy. Sometimes there have been polyomino games where you, you and you're like, eh, it doesn't do much for me. I'm like, yeah, you're right, it's mediocre, but it's a polyomino game. I, 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 ha- I had, this is what we call foreshadowing, I had yet to encounter a polyomino game that I disliked. And so I read the rules, Mark, to a game called Wild Tile West. And I thought, good title though. And I thought, look at this. This is, you know, I'm sick of the tracks in Planet Unknown. Sure. I you you get to trigger abilities when you place the tile, and there's also abilities on the tile, and you're shooting bullets at bad guys, and you're and you're making you know pastures of cattle and and little towns and buildings. This should be great. It is not great. <laughs> it is much too long. The way in which you get to choose tiles. I wonder if it's a, it's a, such a stark comparison to Planet Unknown. I'm wondering maybe that's why it felt so arbitrary and painful because we're just used to being able to at least, you know, once, you know, every four times pick the exact tile we need. This is just like a random dice roll of D8s and D20s and it creates this sort of grid of which you can pick certain tiles. No. It's an unsatisfying and arbitrary draft. Yeah. Just so. And it goes on very, very long. Well, in perfect fairness to Wild Tiled West, we played with five, which is the maximum player count, but it does nothing to have substantial player interaction or to mitigate downtime. And so really it doesn't have much of an excuse, right? If, if I were at least interacting with people, that'd be one thing. But simultaneous play or lightning fast turns which is, to, which is to say evocative of either Planet Unknown or, or Baron Park specifically, which are probably still my favorite polyomino games, excluding A Feast for Odin, which is, you know, more than just a polyomino game. <sighs> just sitting around waiting for people to... Uh, and nothing really amounted to much. The most compelling thing about Wild Tiled West are two components. Number one... Deciphering the rulebook? I said compelling. Longer. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the rule. The, I I didn't interact with the rules much, but they looked pretty bad. One of them is the title. It is the second best Western themed board game title I've ever heard. The best being "This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Two to Four of Us," which I think to this day is one of the great all time board game titles. I have not played the game. Love the title. The second and here here compelling is one of those things where. Like, awesome. Just because something fills you with awe doesn't mean it's good. I was compelled, but not in a good way. The theme of Wild Tiled West, the theming, the, the instantiation of the theming, I think broke something deep inside me. Because, like many games in the contemporary market, it is anthropomorphic animals. 
for anybody that has questions or, or vague sense of unease about the juxtaposition of Pluto and Goofy, Pluto being a non-anthropomorphized, non-language-capable, not presented as particularly sapient pet in the same universe as Goofy, a bipedal dog capable of speech, that doesn't bother me too much. Right? I just find it conceptually interesting. It's like, oh, they made that choice for this. There are so many questions I have about how Wild Child was. I will focus on two, all right? Just two. I, but Walker can assist. How, how often did I interrupt the game being like, what, what, why? <laughs> I lost count at 12. Yeah. I will just focus on two, all right? Number one. We will continue the show later. Just bear, bear with him. I, okay. I just, briefly, <laughs> the universe has both a hotel and a ranch. Who is sleeping where? All right? Number two. There are pastures of cows. At some point, the cows are rustled by cowpokes. Who are the cowpokes? Are they other cows? Are the cows being rustled? What are you doing with the cows? Are they being harvested for beef? Where are they going? Are they being sold somewhere? Who's eating the beef? Who's eating the beef? I, no, seriously. I have. It was. I. I found it borderline disturbing. Three, Mark. You forgot three. Who's pulling the wagon? <laughs> I said I had to limit myself. I'm not going to talk about the snake with a, with a saddle. I'm not going to talk about the mouse who's too small. I'm not going to talk about the bird who doesn't have limbs but does have limbs. And I'm not going to talk about who's pulling the wagon. You're the one making fun of me for taking too long for this, Walker. I'm editing myself. I'm exerting control. And like Mr. Pink, I'm trying to act like a professional. I'm so, so stop egging me on. Yes, sir. So, yes, we... Not just we, no one at the table had a good time with Wild Tiled West. So I'm sorry to say I definitely want to try it with less players to see if the flow sort of brings it back, but I really don't think it will. I think this is one of those ideal player count is zero games. Just so. That is Wild Tiled West by Paul Denon, published by Direwolf this year. Paul Denon, the author of the other Imperium game, namely Dune Imperium. I should Sorry, I shouldn't say the other. That implies there's one other Imperium game. There are many games called Imperium lately. Let me get these two painful games out of the way, Mark. Next sure, go up, for it. Next up is the game we streamed this Saturday. It is called The Dawn of Ulos. And if Tigers and Euphrates had a demon child with <laughs> Stevenson's rocket, this would be it. So it's this bizarre area control fantasy creatures stock market type game where the strength of of the territories is sort of the price that's set of of the stocks and you're buying these cards sort of investing in that particular race and then you can either like Stevens Rocket you can spend some of those cards in order to save them from being destroyed off the map or keep them to score at the end of the game they they or play them for special abilities and the bigger their territory gets the more money they're worth and it was just so odd and so random. I, I just... <laughs> so this is in the Role Player universe. Role Player was a game that kind of was a little bit before the Roll and Write craze really, really took off. And I thought that Role Player was kind of a satire on how bereft of content and setting character creation could be in a role-playing game. You know, reducing everything to a set of numbers and, and nothing is a particular interest. I didn't think it was going to spawn a universe. And yet, here we are. I think this might be proof that we're in the worst timeline. Here we are. This is designed by Jason Lenz and put out by Thunderwork Games, like you said, with all the other role-player stuff. So yeah, on your turn, you're playing a tile somewhere that has to, mat that has to match the map, and 
you can either add it to an existing camp, which is going to, if it matches that, the, the favored terrain of that camp, then they're going to go up in strength. Then you can either a play a card or B buy more cards of a race, depending on their strength, they're going to cost more money. Good old fashioned race war. So yeah, that is Dawn of Ulos will not return. No notes. <laughs> Luckily, after that, we played Marshmallow Test again. Reiner Knizia's trick-taking game. So you held by... off on playing the good game. Exactly. <laughs> published by Game Right. It is a fantastic trick-taking game. Very briefly, because we've talked about it multiple times, you're, you're playing traditional trick-taking games, and as soon as you win a certain number of tricks based on our on the player count, we were playing with four. So the moment you won three tricks, you're out. And then you were score points equal to how many tricks the other players have won. Unless you're the last out, in which case you get nothing. Nothing. So ideally you want, you want to be second last out and you want to have all of the players, you know, the last, the other player other than you to have won two tricks and you'd get maximum points, but don't, Yeah, don't let the perfect stand in opposition to the good. Absolutely. It's such a great trick-taking game. Marshmallow test. You know, trick-takers are really having a moment. I I wonder if this is the time to try to introduce people to Voshtikt. Voshtikt was always my favorite weird trick-taker from like 10 years ago. And not that it was published 10 years ago. By Karl-Heinz Schmiel, he of Tribune and of Demacher. And it's much heavier than a lot of these other trick-taking games are, but it's Fascinating. I wonder if our group would like it. I should probably track down another copy so we could play, try Vashtikt. Super interesting game. Finally, for me, I got to play Caputo Sumo Total Mayhem. I've been wanting to play this expansion for a while. And someone came over who's a genuine devotee of Kabuto Sumo. This is somebody who recognizes that serious games are to be approached lightly and that light games are to be approached seriously. And so we sat down for three very intense sessions of Kabuto Sumo, which is marvelous. I mean, not in a sort of try-hard, super competitive, but it's like, this is a joke, but it's a joke we're taking seriously, which I think is sincerely the tone that more games should be approached. Especially Kabuto Sumo. Especially Kabuto Sumo. The great thing about Total Mayhem is that it introduces a variety of thematically appropriate gimmicks and props to the proceedings. Like, you can have a ladder match, or you can have steel chairs show up, or you can have a coffin match, or what have you. And the best part is, again, kind of like uh, some of my uh, uh, illusions with too many bones, it seeks to uh, round out and address some of the potential pitfalls of the base game. Now, one of the problems that Kabuto Sumo sometimes lead to, not to the frequency that I've seen it attributed, I guess I've just been fortunate, is that it can lead to a stalemate. I push you forward a little bit, you push it back, we just go back and forth, and there isn't a whole lot of progress. Well, a lot of the objects serve to disrupt that. For example, the steel chairs. Everybody gets a steel chair. For one thing, it's a great piece. It's a nice big piece. You get to move a lot, shove a lot of things around with it in this fundamentally sliding things around game, like those weird coin games you can play somewhere where you're trying to shove things off a ledge. 
On top of that, if at the end of a turn a steel chair is touching your opponent wrestler, well, they have to give you one of their pieces. And as a consequence, this can really start to degrade their position so they're not in a, in a place where they can just go back and forth endlessly. They have to A, disrupt the board state, or B, they're going to run out of pieces too fast. And a lot of the match types really led to interesting situations like that. Now, we did have one knockdown drag out that did lead to my suggesting we call it a draw, which was regarded, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially after our discussion from last week. There have been a lot of discussions about, you know, the circumstances under which you might call things. And uh, the, the person with whom I was playing thought the suggestion was a little bit outré, but nonetheless was game for it. And I just really, really like the variety. The only problem I have with Kabuto Sumo Total Mayhem is that the promo wrestler that it came with, who is an, uh, an homage to Andre the Giant, is, um, what's the polite term for sucks? Is not very good. Disappointing. Is very disappointing. If you're going to have a tribute to Andre the Giant, it'd best be good. I did not appreciate it. I then immediately went back to my preferred wrestler, who is, of course, the nature bug, Ric Flair, and had much more fun and success with the nature bug because I got to put somebody in a figure four leg lock. What else could you possibly want out of a game of Kabuto Sumo? So that's Kabuto Sumo Total Mayhem. I am a huge fan of the original game. The original game was a review copy sent to us by the publisher. The expansion, Total Mayhem, which... It increases the visual appeal, which was already considerable, increases the variety, which was already considerable, and also just increases the amount of chaos and things to juggle, which is marvelous and addresses, leads to fewer stalemates than before, at least conceptually, not that I encountered a whole lot of stalemates before. That is not a review copy. We paid for that with our own hard-earned money. Designed by Joel Brigger, Michael Dunsmore, and Tony Miller, published by BoardGameTables.com. It was long overdue, but I was very, very glad to get it to the table, and it did not disappoint at all highly recommended lastly for me i got to play a couple of word games on a online service could or could not be board game arena the first one we've talked about many times it is just one i think i'm just going to try to have an ongoing game for listeners i think you can set it up that anyone from a certain group can just join so there is a so very wrong about games group on board game arena so if you feel like i haven't been invited uh, invites will go to people who I want to be there. Um, uh, so so uh, the just one is great there. So if you feel like playing, come on by. The second one, Mark, you are in a game with me right now. This one is called, sorry, just one is designed by Ludwig Rodi, Bruner Sauter, and put out by Repos Production. Perfect Words is designed by Paul Henry Argot and put out by Tiki Editions. Now this is a little bit more like code names, in the fact that you're associating words together. So there's two phases in this game. One where you're putting down uh, word cards beside each other. You're building a crossword. Building a crossword. They word. call it a crossword, but it's not a bunch of squares related to a single word, but is a bunch of words connected to each other that you're then going to have to clue in. Yeah, so you place a word, and then you get to put a scoring modifier on the outside of those, hopefully, two words. Because you could get trapped, or someone could could pick a word that they really think they could connect three together so they they would connect three yeah sorry about that and then <laughs> i'm not doing too well i <laughs> i think i think i may be ruining the, the game that i'm in just just as a note i haven't finished it yet so i'm not in a position to comment really but i think i'm ruining it so then once all of the words are placed and you have i think 10 sort of combinations of scoring rows and or columns then everyone i think in in real life this might bog down the game a little and i think 
but yeah, I guess because you can add to it after the fact, I thought you could like start writing them down during the game, but because it can change, I guess that wouldn't work. But anyway, you write down the, all the associations, you know, just like code names, you know, you try to link the two words together with a common word or, or item or phrase or something, not a phrase, take that back, uh, <laughs> brand or something. And then everyone compares their list and you're trying to get matches with people. I think it is fantastic. I can't wait to try it in real life. I'm having a lot of fun playing it on Board Game Arena. Just, just so you know, Walker, the internet is still real life. It's true. The things that you say to people there, I've seen you act in, act on the internet. You just have to, it's real life. Dial it back a little. Will do. <laughs> I just don't know what, what you're saying to other people. I just want you to understand. <laughs> All on Board Game Arena. Where's my check? So those are the games we played last week. Let's take a brief break to pay some bills. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And we're back. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So full disclosure, I work at a big box store, may or may not be called Costco. And today we got a pallet. That's like those big square forklifty lifting things that comes in giant cubes. We've got a pallet of 3D Catan and Ticket to Ride Euro sort of anniversary deluxe edition. Both of these games are retailing at $89.99, whereas 
I, this is so bizarre. It's, the MSRP is hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Uh, Catan 3D on Amazon right now is like $378. Yeah. And so if you are a fan of Catan, which we are not, but there are people out there that still enjoy it. 100%. This would be your time. If you have a Costco membership or know someone that does, and that is a great deal. 3D Catan. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And that was the moment you sold out. No. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I do work I just there. But, it, but I don't know. It fills me so, a little bit of joy, right? That the place that you Absolutely. work. Absolutely. I've talked a lot about Target and Walmart and the the, the, the games that they've been stocking. And it's absolutely... Uh, and, and, and for listeners that want to grab a great deal, it's absolutely something worth mentioning. I'm yeah, just joking. And, and oh, I can see why because they, I can see why obviously they, it's a joke. You never had a soul. I, exactly. I can see why it's so cheap, right? Cause this is a whole different deal. Like when you're talking Costco, you're talking, no, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, the sheer scale of units yes. you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. You're not talking like two or three units per, per gaming store. Yeah. We're talking, you know, multiple pallets. Yes. At every single Costco across the world. Yeah. So billions <laughs> of copies of Catan 3D. Maybe not billions. Well, you, but... know, you know what? <laughs> yes, just yes, I point. understand what you're saying. <laughs> so Bitewing Games is going to be publishing new Reiner Knizia designs. Uh, there's going to be a game called Cascadeo and Cascadito. They're going, both going to be crafted at the same time. What I find interesting about this is twofold. Number one, they claim... This, of course, are claims by publisher and should be taken with a massive grain of salt, but that Cascadeo is one of the heaviest Reiner Knizia designs in recent years. Now, I don't always love heavier Reiner Knizia designs. For example, Taj Mahal remains a continual disappointment to me in that it's okay and I don't really love it. And it took me a long time to come to terms with Amun Ray. I thought it was only until the anniversary edition that it was good. But nonetheless, I'm intrigued at what a heavy Reiner Knizia design would look like in the 21st century. And Cascadito is basically the dice game version of it. And while normally there's a period of time that separates Reiner Knizia's publishing a, a board game and then the dice game version of it, or the card game version of it, or indeed the dice game version of that, of the card game version of the original, and then repackages the board game of the dice game version of it, I think with, I lost the thread. With anthropomorphic With anthropomorphic animals, animals exactly, exactly. Uh, they're going to be released at the same time, which I suppose makes perfect sense. Anyway, I'm going to be looking forward to it. That's uh, Cascadeo and Cascadito to be hitting crowdfunding soon from Bitewing Games. Flatter Games, we've liked some of their games lately. Calico, Cascadia was very popular, and we played Fit to Print. They are coming out with a game called Nocturne, which looks equally cute and marvelous. So it looks like it's a little bit heavier than the rest of the games. More anthropomorphic animals, Mark, because oh that is the way you make the money. <laughs> no, I, I think there are two reasons why anthropomorphic animals are all the rage now. I've said this before in other contexts. One of them is, yes, people are chasing the Everdell and Root Bucks. But number two, it's an easy theme. And just because we're not in the era of everyone doing trading the Mediterranean anymore doesn't mean we don't still have trends of kind of the same things repeating itself over and over. And it is a simple way to blanch otherwise potentially problematic themes of any colonialist or violent intent. Yes. This used, it used to be the case this was primarily for gangster-themed games. Right? True. Make them all animals, and suddenly they're not murderer any murderers anymore. They're just cute animals. Yes, this hap this this has been happening all throughout history, where the enemy has always been portrayed by portrayed by either evil animals or in other ways. Well, it's a way to dehumanize people. Exactly. Yeah. Just yeah. So. yeah. And one aspect of dehumanization is to rob someone of agency and therefore blanch them of moral guilt. 
right? And now sometimes that just means they're therefore monsters and can be destroyed. Sometimes that instead means you can't really take seriously anything that's depicted them going on. And I think we're getting far more of the latter. No, than the but former. I mean, I feel as though that's why it was in Wild Held West, because it's sort of depicting a, an era in history where it was, and you're actually shooting people yep. in Wild Held No, West. you're right. You're right. Right. So, and maybe that's just a way to make it a little more family friendly. Who would give guns to bears? Yeah, that That's that's an act of madness. Especially bears that take cocaine. You don't, definitely don't give guns to those ones. <laughs> I would like to note, for the record, the sheriff bears are not depicted as cocaine bears in Wild Tild West. That is purely an invention of Walker. No, it's an invention of modern cinema. There's a movie. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. <laughs> cocaine bears. I know there's a movie called... Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. All right, moving on. Like you said. <laughs> Lastly, for me, there's a Kickstarter coming up that I am going to back. And Mark, I think you might think it as enjoyable as me, I, even though you don't like rolling rights. So this is what you're doing, Mark. You're rolling dice. And you're creating a mini golf course. All the players are doing this. And then once everyone's created their little one hole, like one hole of the of a mini golf course, everyone passes the books to the left or to the right. And then everyone gets to play a different sort of mini game and play the that course. I'm in. Give me five copies. Exactly. I knew you would be. Yep. It's called Tiny Mini Golf. Tiny it's, Mini Golf. Tiny Mini Golf. It's going to be designed by Kamalis Kaminsky. And it's going to be self-published. It'll be on Kickstarter soon. Tiny Mini Golf. It's Self-published? Be... Give me 20 copies. I know. It's going to be awesome. I can't Wild. Wait. And then the sequel can be the Dexterity Game version. Yes. Where you somehow have, get to draw it and then you get to flick some... Eh, we'll figure out the details. Just flick a penny. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, this is a bit of a PSA slash rant. I heard the other night that a dear friend of mine has started playing a Games Workshop product. And oh, that's too bad. Well, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I just want to be perfectly clear. When I talk about how there are lots of tabletop role-playing systems that can get get you where you want to go better than D&D, I completely understand why a lot of people stick with D&D. It's the market leader. It's familiar. Everyone can be on the same page, and there's a tremendous availability of resources for it. And for what it's worth, D&D has done a very, very good job of moving away from its problematic racial past, of being very inclusive, very open to a lot of new players, and that not exclusively for them, but Critical Role and a lot of other people have done a very, very good job right? However, D&D isn't 10 times as expensive as its competitors, and it doesn't deliberately obsolete its products, and it's not uniformly white men in, the, in, in, its, in its representation. So look, if you want to play, I, and I mean this sincerely, if you want to play with dolls on a tabletop, and you love space marines, and what you want is space marines, go forth. Games Workshop will hook you up. That's fine. And I'm not going to be the person being like, you shouldn't be liking that. Well, maybe a little bit as far as the all white dudes. But but setting that aside, go and like whatever you're going to like. Yeah, you'll pay 10 times as much, but that's the, them's the dolls you want. Go forth and play with them dolls. Because tabletop miniatures gaming, I've said this a bunch of times, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But if you just want to play with dolls, if that's what you want to do... Don't give Games Workshop any of your money. <laughs> they don't deserve it. They haven't. The games aren't as good. <laughs> they don't put money into design for. It's just to push plastic. And like, if it's the plastic that you want, again, get that plastic. But if you just want to, anyway. So what I mean, what I mean to say is, before you commit to a miniatures gaming system, if you have options available, some people don't have options. That's fine. You, you're 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 stuck with what the locals are playing. That's cool too. One page rules, for example, will not charge you for rules and will sell you miniatures at a 
fraction of the price. Indie miniatures gaming is totally a thing, and there are tons of brilliant rule systems where you can bring any kind of dolls you want and play with them. I have no beef with anybody who enters into a, any kind of product line consciously with full knowledge of the consequence. But don't ever get there by default. We have found out that you can buy snap ships at the dollar store. Yeah. You can, there's alternate ways. You can buy <laughs> Hot Wheels cars. You buy, so yeah. you can play... Gaslands. Gaslands. Yeah, no, 100%. So if you love yourself, Games Workshop, that's fine. But if you're considering getting into the hobby, just ask yourself, what is it that I want out of the hobby? And you might get to a better place. It just it it seriously makes me chagrined knowing that there are knowing that there are people, and I've spoken to these people who just don't know that there's another way. True. It's sad. It's sad. And oh, it was I want I want to talk about the other side of the coin. Okay. The other side of the coin is you're getting into a hobby that is constantly supported. They have their own magazine. They supported. are supported. They I are, mean but in order to have that level of support, you need that constant turn. You need those high prices in order to uh, employ as many people, sculptors and people that work on White Dwarf magazine yep. and, and do all of these things. There is a, a background lattice work that has to be there as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's so, a lifestyle and, product line. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not there anymore. I was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there, is a, there is another side. That no, I think, and, and if that's what you want, if you yeah. want like something that, that, that has a sort of monthly magazine output and you like buying those codices every three months because the old codex is now obsolete and all those other weird new publications that they've invented i heard about new regular publications you have to buy that i didn't know about i thought i knew about codices but there's all those other... anyway if that's what you want to do i sincerely mean this more power to you go forth and enjoy but it it when people end up at D because it's the default if people end up playing Catan because it's the default if people end up playing that's fine. Whatever. I think there are better alternatives, but I'm not that kind of elitist who's like, well, you know, they, they should feel bad about liking that thing. No, 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 no. But if you end up at Games Workshop because it's the default, woof, you're going to be paying for that literally. Anyway, rant over. So, that's the news and why it doesn't matter. And now on to our feature game, Barcelona. Barcelona was designed by Danny Garcia, published by Boards and Dice, 2013. Danny Garcia is also the designer of Arborea, which sooner or later may hit Canadian shores. It has not as of yet. Uh, Barcelona is a one to four player Euro game in which you do a variety of Euro gamey type stuff. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Barcelona? Well, Mark, you got a pitter patter to get them dar certas for the Ferda. To get them mo ismas. Can confirm. You gotta go up the track, Ferda. Ferda, Ferda. Got to go build those buildings, Ferda. So point salad in giant quotation marks. I really feel, Barcelona, that you're trying to best link up your Serta scoring tiles that, that mirror the modernisma tiles. And so you're drawing three of these uh, Serta scoring tiles, and then you remove them from the modernisma tiles. And so you know all of the different major scoring tiles that are going to be in the game, and you're just trying to you know, link some of those together to do, have your best game possible. Okay. So the theme of the game is actually quite fascinating. Agreed. For about 150 years, uh, Barcelona was a strategic stronghold, and consequently no one was allowed to build outside the fortification walls. So as a result, in the mid-19th century, apparently, Barcelona was the most densely populated city in Europe, and with truly execrable living conditions for a large proportion of its populations, disease was rampant, sanitation was terrible, 
as you would imagine. I mean, it was just incredibly cramped conditions. Uh, this was abandoned. The walls were torn down. And suddenly there was a, a, a big push to develop out to the surrounding communities. And through a variety of uh, through a variety of events, this was spearheaded by Ildefonse Cerda, who invented the term urbanization and had a specific vision for how he wanted Barcelona to be expanded. He also had a, a, a social vision, which we'll probably get to later. And that part is really cool. And the theme doesn't really do much with it because we've all been here. We've been building cities in Euro games for a long time. <laughs> and one of the great, what, one of the other things that happens is that the Sagrada Familia comes along for the, uh, for the ride. And I got to say, a lot of Euro games deal with a lot of different major European churches. And I can't think of a more interesting building that has been done more dirty by Euro games than the Sagrada Familia. Because the, the eponymous game Sagrada isn't even really about I, what I think are the most interesting parts of the Sagrada Familia. It's just about the stained glass. There's interesting stained glass in so many different buildings. That's, what, that's not what's unique about the Sagrada. The Sagrada is weird. It's this gloriously weird building that's been under construction for almost 200 years. Oh, it's a track in Barcelona. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's yeah. just it's just, it's just a track. The other thing that's wild, and I'll, I won't go into detail because I, I could talk about this forever, not that I know a whole lot about Ildefonse Cerda or, or urbanization or urban planning or anything like that, but he specifically had some objections to how the buildings were going to be built because he wanted this to be accessible land for the working class. He didn't want it to be densified. He didn't want it to be to expand upwards. Uh, for a variety of aesthetic and functional reasons. He wanted there to be sunlight everywhere. And consequently, he favored a certain kind of construction. A certain kind of construction which the game penalizes you for doing. <laughs> I won't go into detail because it's just... There could have been... I think this is a huge wasted opportunity. There could have been an interesting push and pull between living up to the social and functional urban vision of Serta and other be they economic concerns or the exigencies of resources or what have you, uh, as it is, not really. Are I mean, saying, they, Are you saying like when you build a big building, you go down the Serta track? They try. There, there are gestures towards it. But the problem yeah. the problem is is that one of the buildings that sends you down the Serta track was actually one of the kinds of buildings that he apparently liked. So they, they, they kind of get there. I would have liked it if there had been a little bit more teeth. Again, like substantive trade-offs. Uh, frequently it's the case that I didn't mind pissing off Serta because I was getting Serta from elsewhere. We'll be getting to that later. There's a lot of elsewhere in, in, in Barcelona. I just think that it's such an interesting development. And and the fact that they just kind of threw in the Sagrada Familia as, as an afterthought, I think is, in well, it feels like an afterthought in the game. I can't speak for, for Danny Garcia. I don't mean to offend his sensibilities. Uh, but it, it just... I think it's emblematic of the way in which they take a very rich tapestry of history and end up producing a result that doesn't do it remote justice. All right, let's start at the beginning, which is setup, which is nothing, because I've already talked about how you have to set up the, those just two types of tiles. And then, like you said, there's the the familia, and then there are all of the different actions you can do, because what you're doing is there are all these sort of streets, and where the streets intersect, you're going to put down some citizens, and where they intersect on the outside of the board are the different actions, and so you can make them random every game. And then you have your player board, which you're putting upteen number of tokens and counters and cubes on public services public services you have to set up and yes yeah, so the setup is not nothing and then you get to play many euro games uh, i think one of the paradigmatic examples of this we talk about them all the time is uh vladimir suki 
get you in a position where by the mid to late game, you're doing an action and, and every once in a while, action A leads to action B, which leads to action C, and suddenly you've got this big combo and you're doing a whole bunch of things. Barcelona, to its credit, and this is genuinely interesting, says, what if that was turn one? What if that was all the turns? And it's kind of weird. I was, the, the very first turn of Barcelona I ever played, I'm like, this feels like the late game of a lot of other Euros. Yes, because you have two citizens that you're going to refresh at the end of your turn. And like, like I said, you're going to put them at an intersection. And then that's going to correspond to two, maybe three actions, maybe even a fourth action. Maybe a fifth. Maybe a fifth. And then, and then you have to build. The first player of, of Barcelona will not be able to build because it's all based on, because like I said, they're intersecting streets. So every square is sort of a block and you get to build a building if there's at least two citizens and they have to be a particular color. There's low class, mid class and high class and you place buildings. And this is going to give you sort of like an all sorts of interesting choices as in what order you're going to place your citizen tokens in. Because you always have two, they have to be placed together, and they're going to be one of those, two of those three. And depending on what order you put them in, is really going to change what buildings you can build and what buildings the next players are going to be able to build. And where to put them, as in like what actions you want to take and and if you want to build or not, because you might, it might, it's like this, you know, seesaw. Well, I really want to put this building out, but I really want to do these actions, but I don't want to set up the next player. So it's really going to change what actions you choose probably. And that is the fundamental tension for me, the key tension in playing a game of Barcelona, because you want to be able to build the kind of building you want to build and you want to do the actions that you want to do. And sometimes you can't do both. Frequently, unfortunately to my tastes, too frequently, you can do both. Or the trade-offs are not particularly profound because, as you say, there are these intersections and they all surround these blocks. It's not usually very hard to get enough surrounding a block to get where you need to go. But sometimes you can't, and those are my favorite moments in Barcelona where I really have to decide, eh, do I want to give up the action or do I want to give up a build? Yeah, and then even after that, you get to decide which uh, citizens to remove because most of the buildings only take one or uh, sorry, two or three. And so you can remove certain citizens around that block to make it harder for the next players to play. Yeah. Because but that, that, that constraint is usually pretty trivial. You just leave them the lowest class available citizen because they are able to build the least. Well, that's true. But that's what, that's what I mean. It ties into what you, how you place yours. So you place the high citizen on top and then you remove it. And then you just hope that they didn't draw a high citizen and then they will be right. able to. And that actually is my, having talked about my favorite gameplay element of Barcelona, you know, the fact that there's no ramp up, the combos start right away, which actually I should stress before I get into my substantive mechanical criticism, it's remarkably short uh, and quick playing for a game of its depth. Yes. I just want to finish off before we move oh, on. Oh, fine. I don't get to have my observation. You, you do, get to have your you observation. For, okay, is, fine, is, fine, is, fine. Is fine. it about buildings? Cl clap when I get to talk. Oh, I, I just want to make, I want to finish with the buildings. Go ahead. Because the buildings tie into the very interesting sort of uh, turn structure of Barcelona. Because, like I said, you take off those citizens that built the building. Now they're going to go down on the sort of round track. They have, the, each one has their own row. And not only is that going to tell you how many points you're going to score every time you build a building, because you look over the tracks and you're going to score the lowest victory points and they're slowly going to get higher and higher. But there are three sort of blocks. And as soon as a block fills up, then you're going to do the scoring. And I, I thought that was very interesting Sort of, I don't, I can't think of a game that does that kind of uh, timing mechanism. 
Well, you know, it's not uncommon to have uh, Great Western Trail comes to mind. A lot of games where it says, well, you're removing a certain number of tokens and that's going to serve as the game clock. And this has middle scoring. I do like how there are there's a universe of scoring effects and Barcelona at setup, three of them are going to be public scoring effects and the remaining scoring effects form the private goals. And so there's a complementary set. That part I, th- I thought was, was kind of interesting. A little bit painful for setup, but nonetheless a, an, an interesting complementary set. The, the the clock leads to a shocking, shockingly brisk game. It's not like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. It's much longer than that, you know, 75 minutes probably. But it feels like a lot of the 90 to 120 minute Euros precisely because it gets rid of the buildup. There's no infrastructure. There's no real notion of income. There's one thing that's kind of sort of income, but not really. And you're just immediately going after the big buildings. There's, I, I really appreciate the fact that it just chopped out the ramp up because it figured, eh, I don't really have to. The part that I really don't like about Barcelona, though, as the beginning gives way to the mid-game and as the mid-game gives way to the end-game, more and more I find the luck of the draw starting to become extremely punishing because the map starts filling up with buildings and there comes a point where you can, in many cases, only build by overbuilding. And you overbuild by being able to play high, high-class high citizens. There is a best draw in Barcelona. There's a categorically best draw. It is one blue, one pink. And the more you get away from that best draw, the worse your chances are. are, are. Now, this can lead to a 20-point swing in some instances. If, you, if it's the difference between being able to build a building and you can't, that can literally be the consequences. And given that the rest of, of Barcelona is reasonably deterministic and reasonably straightforward, that's sort of hard. Nope, nope, you didn't, you didn't pull what you needed. It's so trivial. I, 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 I would think that there had to be a way to deal with the interesting variability of controlling the game tempo of the scoring elements that you talked about without this sort of crippling sort of, well, I would be able to build a building if I'd drawn better, but I didn't, so I can't. Oh, well, guess it sucks to be me. Agreed. It is quite a huge swing. And and not only that, you're also just setting up the next player to do that much yep. better. And there's nothing you can do about it. Literally nothing. There's no way to mitigate the draw at all, at all, period. And there's nothing you can do to prevent another player from being able to capitalize on it if they drew the thing they wanted. Yeah, because even if you've put it out in the middle of nowhere, then they're still going to, well, unless, unless uh, you know, you couldn't do it because you didn't draw, you know, a high citizen and they happen to. If they're under, if they're under the same sort of uh, bad draws, you you can make it so that they also have a bad. Yeah, you turn. can keep kicking the can yeah. down the row until someone drew well enough, and then they'll be able to profit from exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and again, when it's a, a case of my giving up a building opportunity because I'd rather go do a certain other action, that's great. Then hard choices. That's what I'm in gaming for to a large extent. But if it's just oh well, I could do this thing if I hadn't drawn, it just feels so out of place, and it is so pointed that it sticks out like a sore thumb. Agreed. And then you have a giant player board sitting in front of you and all sorts of things you can do on your player board. You're putting out intersections that gives you this interesting sort of choice uh, where they go, hey, Mark, did you know that the intersections go in the intersection? I was about to say that. That's, you know, very deep. And so that means whenever you or any other player plays pieces on that intersection, then you're going to get a benefit. And you also, you know, and it gets better and better as you go along. There are there's a passenger and uh, sidewalk tracks that will give you end game points. There's collecting and improving your uh, modernisma tiles, 
because uh, like end, said, end game scoring conditions, end game scoring conditions, and there are sort of many modifiers because we haven't even talked about the furta track yet. There's depleting your building stacks and your road stacks to get to furta, and then there's moving up the square uh, familiar track, which gives you all sorts of crazy bonuses, including furta. Yeah, I mean, and then managing your inventory, which I thought was not nothing. Yeah, it's not nothing. There's a variety of different things you can do. It's one of those situations where I think it all shakes out to get you more or less the same place. You have these increasing scales of cost and benefit, and you go up various. It's effectively like going up a track, and you get increasing points. Uh, you know, whether whether you're getting your the bulk of your points from having raced up the Sagrada Familia track, or whether you're getting a whole bunch of points because you put out a whole bunch of sidewalks, and whether you did that because you had an in-game scoring tile or something else. It's all it's all fine. It's all enjoyable, and you marshal your resources to go do them, but. I don't feel like there's a tremendous variety. And in point of fact, the 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 fact that very little of it hangs together in a coherent way, I find a little bit unpleasant. Let me draw a, a contrasting example. Uh, very different game, but if you look at Audubon, right? The way Audubon works, your gas stations interact with the roads that you're building. The roads that you're building interact with where your trucks are going. Your tr- Where your trucks are going are interacting with, with a whole bunch of other stuff. Here, you have a lot of the superficial similarities in Barcelona, right? The intersections are kind of like your gas stations. You've got a trolley that's kind of like your trucks and you're putting out roads. But nothing speaks to each other in any substantive way. It's just standard Euro stuff. Yeah. Again, more more like what I was talking about the theme, a wasted opportunity. If it had cohered a little bit better, I think we really could have seen something interesting. There's an attempt to make the roads and your trolley interact, but it doesn't really shake out to anything. It's a bit unfortunate. When I saw the, the fact that you could you know build road networks and all that, I was like, oh, well, this might be interesting. It's not. Yeah, because the, trolley, the trolley action is something that's weird because unless there are scoring tiles that you happen to get to to score that trolley there are there is the sort of the track that gets higher and higher but the the trolley action just gets you another action so you're not it's it's sort of the trolley action looks like it is an interesting possibility to exploit a road network and possibly generate new and interesting combos in point of fact in practice the trolley action is merely an opportunity to convert resources to points exactly so and then mark we haven't talked about the awesome cobblestone board <laughs> so we yes. don't want to put sidewalks, man. That would clutter up the board. So we're going to have a whole different board to put out a giant <laughs> square of sidewalk that will represent the sidewalks in the city, I I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so what it really is is just this giant grid of bo- bonuses because there's not enough bonuses already. We need more bonuses. Yes. And of course, and some of those bonuses are extra actions. Yes. <laughs> and of course, there's going to be tiles that give you bonuses for putting out the 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 sidewalks that get you bonuses. Yep. Yep. I mean, ultimate bonuses. <laughs> Did we mention bonuses? Yeah. Look, I, and to a large extent, I think that sort of encapsulates the sort of agony and ecstasy of Barcelona. Utterly themeless, combo-tastic nonsense that could have cohered but doesn't, but it's very efficient at delivering you that combo-tastic nonsense, right? And so while I object to the luck of the draw, I object to the themelessness, I'd happily play because it's it, it nonetheless feels somewhat novel in the Eurospace for how lean and efficient it is while still being a sprawling point salad-esque affair of disconnected almost tracks, right? So it's done a good job of trimming away some of the fat. It just hasn't gone to that next step of really bringing everything together. And again, games like Kalamala, which are... Uh, really clever and really tight. Barcelona is really clever, but not really tight. 
Uh, games like Autobahn, both by Fabio Lopiano, coincidentally. Autobahn brings everything together, and that's one of the reasons why I, I really enjoy it so much. But at least I feel like when you compare uh, Barcelona to a game like uh, from Vladimir Suki, like, for example, Praga Capit Regni, you're, it's it's going to be about half the times, uh, even amongst new players, I think, in many instances, and you get to the combos right away. So that that's not nothing. Yeah, I was going to bring up Praga, because Praga is a little tighter, Barcelona is much looser, and I think that's sort of sort of tends to the flow of the game because you're always looking at the board. There's always ways I need, I need to get two cloth and I need to get this and I need to get that. And there's a way that you can puzzle it out. It's like, well, if I put, that's true. You're right. If I put my, my, my citizens here, that's the tram. I can move the tram here, which will get me that, which will give me the cobblestone. I'll do it in this order. Cause if I put the cobblestone out this way and then, you know, as you can hear, it's this combo tastic, but it's, it's very interesting and you get to do it during the downtime. So you're ready to go. Cause there is usually very little, you know, there's always a way to, you know, even if someone takes that exact spot, you can sort of finagle around. Well, I mean, again, that's, that's one step forward, one step back. There's precious little player interaction, except of the accidental kind. There's hardly even much of an, I got their first element because one of the things over which you might be competing, the public works. Yeah, they get a little bit more expensive, but they get better as time goes on. So I, I'm, I'm happy to get the first one. I'm happy to get the second one. I'm happy to get the third one. I don't care. And <laughs> the end game scoring tiles are sufficiently specialized that you're seldom in competition with anybody else. But by the same token, and I have to say, partially it's because of the lack of player interaction, downtime is shockingly inoffensive, given how combo-tastic it is. It's weird, because I, I remember two-player games of uh, Praga Capit Regni, where it's like, is your turn done yet? Is your turn done yet? No, you're going to another act, another act, another action. And yet I can play a four-player game of Barcelona, and someone's on their fifth action, and they get it sorted out because they're relatively straightforward. Because... We, we talk about actions. Some of these actions are just, I take a cloth. So, again, it's 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 a surprising juxtaposition of sprawl and focus, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's kind of novel. I guess all we got left is talking about the Furda track, Mark, the Furda. Okay, so, just to be clear, we are making a reference to the show Letterkenny, <laughs> where Furda is something the hockey players say, and it is Furda boys. So you say you score some goals, Furda, you crush some Sandos, Furda, etc., 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 the <laughs> Ildefons Serta is represented in the game prominently, and the Serta track is very, very important. And consequently, there are lots of things that can move you up or down the Serta track for scoring. It's a score multiplier for much of the game's score. And so we have fallen into being number one, largely ignorant of and thus disrespectful of the history of Barcelona's expansion, and number two, fans of Letterkenny. Uh, can frequently be heard, okay, and I take this tile Ferda, and I get this Ferda, and et cetera, et cetera. It's a consequential track that's straightforward, and thus I find it relatively unobjectionable in the grand tradition of Euro tracks. And you reset after every round, unless you're in the negative. If you're in the negative, you don't get to reset. <laughs> yes. You get to stay in the negative. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to be pra- yeah. playing a pretty interesting game to be in the negative, though. We've never seen it. Yes, because you get a lot of things. That the, almost everything moves you up the Serta track. So, and you said nothing ties together, and that's not that's not exactly true. Okay, because as you put out sidewalks, your inventory gets bigger because that totally makes sense, right? That's full <laughs> theme, right? Okay, that is the one thing. Yeah, they kind of. It does, but I mean, it's so themeless. It <laughs> sure, <care>. sure. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, I mean, basically, at the end of the day, as I say, Barcelona is—it's it, close to being great. I think, as it is, it's—it's it's 
pretty okay. I, I happy to play it. Uh, it, but it's at least more interesting than a lot of other aggressively forgettable medium-heavy Euros that cross our table on a regular basis. Uh, I do think it's the, the luck of the draw is a little more pointed than it should be. It's sprawling nature offends me because it could have cohered in a way that a lot of other better Euros have. And I really do think that as far as interesting history to dull theming in a game or sometimes even contradictory theming, it reaches new heights. But past all that, I'd still happily play if someone else suggests, but I don't think it's going to enter regular rotation on my request. Agreed. The The symbology is very straightforward. The actions are very simple. I feel the teaches are fairly smooth and the game gets going very quickly like you said you're right into what a late game combo tastic euro feels like i i don't think i would ever suggest barcelona but if someone says uh, you know i definitely want to give this a try i would be right there happy to teach it happy to play it but i just i'd rather play a different game that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us. We appreciate your having spent some time with us here at So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all of our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. We hope to see you again soon, and please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.